My name is Jason Dunbar. I'm the youth and young adult pastor here at Woodburn. We welcome you this morning. We're excited. If you've been here the last few weeks, we've known we've been in a series, as the video showed, Heroes versus Villains. And the idea is just spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. And uh, we have to remember that everyone is fighting a spiritual battle. Everyone in this room is fighting a spiritual battle. Uh, as, we've, as Rod mentioned earlier, this, our country <laughs> is fighting a spiritual battle. But the thing is, as believers, we don't have to fight for that victory because we've already won. We're fighting right. from victory. And there's power in that. There's, there's honor in that. And so we have to remember that, that, that the evil one has been defeated. But the thing is, he is not going to give up. He wants to take back everything that Christ has already won, but we know that nothing can be taken from Christ. And so what he's going to do, he's going to come at you. Right. He's going to attack you. He's going to attack you personally. He's going to find out what's going on in your life and try to destroy you. But remember this, victory belongs to you since you belong to Jesus. He can come at you and he will, but you have already won. So the only way that you can lose is to surrender or just not show up, not show up to fight. The enemy is going to find your weakness and he's going to just hound you. He's going to pound that weakness over and over and over because the enemy is persistent, but he's also predictable. So when you find what weaknesses you might have, you can identify where he's going to come from. And so this morning, as we continue this series, we're, we're looking at heroes and villains of Scripture, and we're going to look at how can we draw some insight from these heroes as they have given us examples, and we're going to look at how the evil one uses his strategies uh, with these villains. So today, let's take a look at David and Saul. First Samuel chapter 24, it may be the... Th- Uh, the leftover third grade boy in me, but I think this is just the funniest and best story ever. (laughs) First Samuel chapter 24. We're going to read the whole chapter. This is really, really good stuff. Pay close attention to the example of the hero, David. Pay close attention to the way the enemy works through Saul. This is really, really good. First Samuel chapter 24. After Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Y'all know what the Hebrew word there says, right? I mean, to relieve himself is, is, is the way we would say that. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in the very same cave. Now's your opportunity, David's been whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with you as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's, Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes that it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. 
This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you've been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As the old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate, and he will rescue me from your power. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son, David? And he began to cry. And he said to David, You're a better man than I am, for you've repaid me good for evil. Yes, you've been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for this kindness you've shown me today. And now I realize that you're surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath, and Saul went home, and David and his men went back to their stronghold. David and Saul, to say that they had a tumultuous relationship would be an understatement, but their, their history goes all the way back to you know, Saul and the whole defeat of Goliath with David, and, and that whole situation kind of started with just a little bit of jealousy, that Saul had for David. And remember, we talked a few weeks back at how just a little bit of jealousy opens the door to your heart for Satan to get a foothold. That's right. And, and so it began with jealousy, and it's now, at, you know, he's trying to kill him. And so at this point in, in their journey, David and his, and his men uh, have been fleeing Saul. Saul had been trying to kill and get rid of David. He wanted him out uh, of the picture. He was threatened by David. And, and, you know, he didn't really want to have any competition. People liked David. David was well-received. And, and Saul didn't want this. He didn't want David, the, the threat of, of David overthrowing him, even though that's not what David was even trying to do. And so his men were, were fleeing from Saul and David. And even, even the whole while, they're still fighting the Philistines. But they went to this area where there's lots of caves and were hiding out in a cave. Now, they were fleeing from Saul, so they were hiding from Saul, but they were also hiding from anybody who would want to turn them over to Saul. So that was important for them to be hidden and, and undercover. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're here in this story. We're, here, we're picking up where Saul has kind of gotten word to the general area that David and his men are. Um, he didn't know what cave they were hiding in or that they were even hiding in a cave. And so this area, again, has lots of caves. And so the chances of Saul choosing that one particular cave was pretty it's pretty significant, um, but we live in an area of caves, so if those of you who have been in Mammoth Cave or other caves like that, you know how dark they can be, right? Once you get down in there away from the, the opening, it's, it's almost invisible. You can't see anything in front of your face. So Saul goes down into this cave and to relieve himself, find some privacy, and be alone. And, um, and so it's so dark, he can't see what's going on around him. It's dark enough that David is able to sneak up and actually cut a piece of his robe. So pretty dark. If, if you can't tell when someone is sneaking up on you and cutting your clothes off, right? So it's pretty dark in there. And so Saul is in there and oblivious to what's going on. And David's men are, are telling him, you know, this 
how can this be any better? You know, kill him. You know, it, it, it's right there. God has handed him over to you. Kill him right now in this. We don't have to worry about that anymore. But, but David, you know, he, he listened to these men. They were urging him to do this. They were, they were pushing him to do this. And, and he knew what, what God wanted him to do. He knew that God had appointed Saul as king. He didn't want to go against what God had done. And so he was struggling against what people were telling him to do and what he knew was right. But he listened to them enough that, that he actually ur- they urged him enough to go up there and actually cut a piece of that robe off. But he felt guilty of even doing that. And it's because he knew what was right and he knew what was wrong. And so the thing is, in, in spiritual battle, we have a choice to make. We can do what, what we think uh, we would want to do, what, what we naturally, how we naturally respond, or we can do what is right. Because the thing is, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. David's men, again, were urging him. They were saying, do this, do this. He's right here. Never again will somebody be more vulnerable than when they are doing what, they are, what Saul is doing, right? That's pretty vulnerable. He will be, it would be a humiliating defeat if you take him out right now. He is right here, handed over to you. And that didn't mean that David didn't think about it, you know, because we see he, he crept up to him and cut part of his rope. So we know that David was tempted to take out Saul. We know that he was tempted. That was put right in front of him. He had a decision to make. And so he was tempted, but he chose to do what he was supposed to do because just because Saul was presented to him and he could have killed him doesn't mean that he should have. That's right. We are able to justify so many things in our lives. We live in a world of justification where we can do anything as long as we can back it up by this is why I did it, right? Yeah. And we can make ourselves feel better about decisions that we make because this is why I did it. And so David, in this particular situation, would really be justified if he came to me and explained to me what had happened. This man had been trying to kill me. He was chasing me down, and it was either kill or be killed. And I would have been understanding of that, right? We probably all would have been. But the thing is, that's not what God wanted him to do. That's right. That's good. And so he shouldn't do it. Just because it seems it's presented to you on a silver platter, just because it looks amazing, doesn't mean we should do it. And it doesn't mean that we can justify it to make ourselves feel better. The thing is, if we take a pause when a decision is in front of us and take a step back and think, what is it that God wants me to do? I guarantee you, he is going to be able to do so much more than you ever imagined. The thing is, we can lash out. We can respond in in the way that we were treated, and it's not going to be very fruitful, right? It's not going to produce the kind of fruit that we want. But if we respond in the way that God would have us to do, he he will produce fruit. He will mend relationships. How powerful is that? He will open and restore communication. He will open doors that we never even knew existed if we just step back and ask him what it is that he wants us to do. Ephesians 3.20 says this, he is able through his mighty power at work in us to accomplish infinitely more than we can ever think to ask. Infinitely more. So, why not follow the person who knows infinitely more than us? Yeah. That's what we want. We want God to do more. So just because you can doesn't mean you should. Another lesson we can learn from David is to never pass up a chance to repay good for evil. That's good. Yeah. You know, David had <clears throat> excuse me, an opportunity here to, to do exactly 
what Saul was trying to do to him. And again, we could, he could have justified that. The easiest thing in the world to do is to repay evil with evil, right? The e- easiest thing to do is respond the way they treated you. It's natural for us because it's our sinful nature to respond like that. David could have killed Saul and, and, and it ended this for, in his mind once and for all right then. But the thing is, it wouldn't have solved anything. It would just created more problems. He would have created more enemies in the process. When we're forced into a difficult situation in the midst of a battle, of a spiritual battle, it's so much easier oftentimes to lash out the exact same way they lashed out at us. You, your friend has been mistreated, so, and they were screamed at, they were yelled at, so I'm going to yell and scream at you. That's what you did to them. I'm going to stand up for them, and I'm going to yell and scream at you. It's harder to step back, swallow your pride, and think through what is the best option. What is God telling me to do? How is God telling me to respond? We all know this scripture, Matthew 7, 12, do, what, do to others what you would have them do to you. Yeah. Treat them the way that you want to be treated. In the heat of this battle, it's, it's so easy to treat them the way they treated you. Yeah. And, 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 and again, we can justify that because that's, they were mean to me. They hurt my friend. They hurt my family. But that's not how God works. We're not fighting against that person. We're fighting against Satan. Satan is just using that person to get to you. So don't lash out to them. Just lash out to Satan and don't let him let you stoop to that level. Yeah, it's good preaching. The greatest commandment in Scripture in Matthew says to love the Lord our God with everything that we have, right? But we can't forget that part that that he tagged on right there at the end. The second is is equally as important is to love your neighbor as yourself. We are called to love each other. And our neighbor is a lot of times the person who is coming at us, a lot of times the person who is mistreating us. Because we tend to think neighbor is someone we like. But neighbor is oftentimes that person who just pushes your buttons, that person who treats you horribly. And so we are called to love them. In the middle of that spiritual battle, you want to lash out, you want to stand up for your friend, you want to do what they did to you. But we are supposed to love each other. And David was a great example of this. He showed mercy and forgiveness. He had been chased. His life had been threatened several times. And, and, and the idea that if Saul had probably gotten to him first, he probably would have tried to kill him again, right? So David could have been justified by, by, by taking Saul out, but he didn't. Even though his, his men were telling him how great an opportunity this is, David said, no, I can't do this. So it's important for us to stand up for what's right, even if we stand alone. Because that's what David did. 600 men were with him, and they were probably all <clears throat> encouraging him, take him out, get rid of him. If you don't, he will. And so David was kind of alone in this. He said, no, this is not what God wants. Right. Sometimes God wants something for your life that nobody understands. Nobody understands the inner workings of what's going on anyway in, in most of our lives. But, you know, we have people that are telling us, giving you advice, and, and by all accounts, they're probably, they want the best for you. They want, they want you to succeed. They want you to be happy. But they may not know what God is telling you to do. That's right. That's they may not know the conversations that you and God have had. So listen to what God is telling you and, and stand up for what you know is right, even if you're standing out there all alone. Because sometimes what's presented to you just seems like the most amazing idea. This has to be from God. I don't have to pray about this because this is perfect. But we have to seek what is God's idea, not ours. Yeah, that kind of clarification, though, is very, very difficult to find in the fog of war. And we're talking about spiritual battles, right? We're talking about the way the devil comes at us. 
And that ability to know God's voice, to hear God's voice and discern God's voice uh, in dif- differentiation from the other voices that you hear, it becomes very, very difficult. And the devil uses that. The devil always uses that. It's the fog of war. It's the chaos and confusion, which is always his handiwork. So back up to verse four. I want to piggyback on what Jason was just saying. And that was good stuff right there, man. Thank you. That was good. Verse four, now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Now's your opportunity. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will put your enemy into your power. That makes perfect sense. I mean, you've read the Psalms, right? David has prayed all of these amazing prayers, asking God to deliver him from his enemies, asking God to bring justice, asking God to be his defender, asking God to deliver his enemy into his hands. And now just look, I mean, just look, David is hiding in the back of this cave from Saul and all of a sudden, who starts, who drops his drawers and starts backing up into the cave? It's Saul, y'all. I mean, he drops his royal britches, starts backing his royal backside right up into David. How could it not be just Jesus saying, David, kick it? I mean, you know, how could that not be a God thing? And that's what David's men say. It's a God thing. This is a God thing. It's a God thing. But understand, the enemy just loves, it's one of his best strategies. He just loves to make his idea seem like God's idea. This is a very, very evil, diabolical strategy, but it's the devil we're talking about here. And this is one of his best strategies. If he can only convince you that God is blessing what you're about to do, if it can only make you think that you've got God's permission, if it can only make you think that God's going to excuse what you're about to do, then the devil can actually make you do evil. If he can convince you that this is a God thing, if he can convince you that it's God's idea in the first place, if he can make you think that God is blessing you, then he can cause you to do all sorts of evil. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Because God would never tempt us to do evil. God would never lead us to do evil. But the devil, the devil can absolutely make his idea sound like God's idea happens right here. It's unbelievable. It's just the strangest coincidence. How could God not be in it? God's not in it. It's not God's will. God does not want David to harm Saul. But oh my goodness, what a sweet opportunity. It must be a God thing, all of David's men say. This is a God thing. This is your opportunity. Go for it. No. No. David knows what God has said. David knows that the scripture says, you shall not touch my anointed one. David knows that he's been anointed king. He knows that, but he also knows right now there is a king and it's Saul and that God anointed Saul too. David knows that. And God is the one who's going to raise up and bring down kings. That's not David's place. And David is not going to step into the position of God. David knows what God wants. David knows God's will. Unfortunately, you and I often aren't quite as discerning as David, especially in the fog of spiritual battle. I once heard a grown man, a grown man excuse his sexual affair with a high school girl by saying, God brought her into my life. Okay, no, no, but but in his mind, in his mind, that's how he had convinced himself that the evil he was doing was actually God's will. God brought her into my life at a time when I really needed somebody. No, sir, that's evil. That, that, that's evil. 
But we have this ability to call evil good sometimes when it is the devil whispering in our ear what it is that we really want to do by ourselves anyway. It's wicked the way he can turn our thoughts around. You're telling yourself that it's God's will, that, that this is a God thing, that somehow God is asking you to do this evil thing that's right in front of you. And I heard a man who is abusing his wife argue that the Bible says that the wife's supposed to submit to the husband, and if she won't submit, he's allowed to beat her into submission. No, sir. N- no. But do you understand how that works? Do you understand how good the, the devil is at making his idea sound like God's idea? Man, if he can wrap up evil in the word of God so that you can actually use scripture as that man did, I'm beating her into submission. God says that she should submit to me. That is evil. That is evil. All of the people in the world who can preach hate and racism and bigotry in the name of a God of love, do you understand how wicked that is? To take God's word, God's character, God's holiness, and turn it upside down so that you can excuse the wickedness that you want to do that's coming out of your own heart. The enemy loves to make his idea seem like God's idea. It's the fog of spiritual battle. You've got to be smarter than that. You've got to be more honest than that. You've got to be discerning. But it's difficult. It's difficult. Uh, Look at something with me. Go back. Let's do some uh, fun with Bible math here. Look back at chapter 24, verse 2. How many men does Saul enlist to go after David with him? What's it say there in verse 2? 3,000 what? Elite troops. What are elite troops? These are like Navy SEALs. These are like Marines with tanks and drones. Saul is the king, and he has the entire army of Israel at his disposal, and he disposes it. 3,000 elite men. I mean, these are the best of the best. And who are we going after? David. And exactly what army does he command? He doesn't really have an army. David has, you know, like rednecks with pickup trucks with, with him and, and shotguns, you know, paintball guns. I, I mean, I'm not kidding. I, I'm not kidding. David has just got a, a ragtag bunch of guys who are willing to, to fight with him. If you go back to chapter 23, verse 13, it tells us about how many men David has. So again, fun with Bible math. How many men does David have? About 600 rednecks with pickup trucks okay so if you do the math if 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 we say 600 rednecks with pickup trucks plus david that means on this side we have how many about 601 and on this side we have about how many 3,000 and we count Saul 3,001 so uh, if you do the math david and his men are outnumbered by about what what ratio five to one Five to one. Wouldn't you say that's a little bit of overkill? What in the world is Saul? Who does he think he's fighting? This is part of what David says. What in the world are you doing? I'm like a flea. I'm like a flea out here, and you're coming at me with the entire army with drones and tanks. What in the world are you thinking? Understand, this is part of the devil's strategy. Not only is this the way Saul came after David, this is the way the devil comes after you. Remember what Jason said to start off this sermon, victory is yours. 
If you belong to Jesus, victory belongs to you. And if you fight in the name of the Lord Jesus, I'm telling you, you cannot be defeated. Victory is yours. It's already yours. Jesus won the victory. There's there's no defeat for us in Jesus' name. And the devil knows that. He does not want to fight you in Jesus' name because he can't win. The only way he can win is if you don't fight in Jesus' name. If you don't show up to fight. So one of his best strategies, please understand this, this is how he's working in your life. One of his best strategies is shock and awe. He shows up with with tanks and drones and thousands of elite fighters. Do you understand? His idea is to completely overwhelm you. The enemy's strategy is to overwhelm and paralyze you to make you give up before there's even a fight. You've heard me say this before. This is not... This is not really that poetic. It's just the truest thing I know how to tell you. And this is, this is uh, the Tim Harris rule of spiritual warfare. Are you ready for this? The devil will never send a shark to devour you in one bite. Instead, he will send what? A thousand minnows. Or in the country, they're minners. What are we talking about? What's a minnow? Little bitty yeah, fish bait. Little bitty fish, little bitty fish, yeah. The devil's not going to send a shark to swallow you in one bite because you would see that coming and you would fight the shark. Instead, a thousand minnows, tiny little things that honestly, you could pinch their little heads if it was one at a time, but he won't send one. He'll send a thousand. This is your life, and this is how the devil works, This is what spiritual warfare looks like. It's a lot of small things that all come at you at once. In other words, on the day that your transmission goes out, the water heater will blow its gasket, your child will get in trouble at school, you'll be caught into the principal's office, and your wife will find the lump under her arm. Am I telling you the truth? This is how the devil works. He piles it on you. He piles it on you. He piles it on you to overwhelm you. You just overwhelm. So therefore, you just don't even fight. Now, any one of those small things you could easily handle, any one of those small attacks you would be able in the name of Jesus to shake off, but it's never just one small attack. It's one after another, after another, after another, and he just simply piles it up. And he piles it up to the point where you just collapse. You just collapse. It seems like too much. It's too much to take on. You're overwhelmed. You don't know where to start. You don't know how to fight. How do you defend yourself against the the, the war against a thousand minnows? It's the devil's primary strategy in your life. He'll let you go for a long, long time. That lulls you into comfort. It makes you think that he's forgotten about you, or at least it makes you forget about him. So that when these attacks start, for the longest time, you don't even connect the dots. You don't even realize that it's the devil behind all of this. It's the devil who's piling it on simply to make you never, ever fight him. Paralyzes you, overwhelms you. Saul shows up with thousands of elite soldiers to go after David. Why does he do that? So that David and his men will look out, see that they are horribly outnumbered, and surrender. This is how you get defeated, brother. 
just all of these things that just keep coming, that just keep coming, they keep coming, and you just lose the strength to fight. If it was one big battle, you'd step up, you'd know what to do, but it's just all these tiny things, it's just tiny things that wear you out. Man, the devil knows when you're tired. The devil knows when you're exhausted. He he can't beat you if you fight in the name of the Lord, so he just paralyzes you with fear or exhaustion. I mean, you would think that after you've battled cancer and had cancer surgery, you shouldn't have to face marital problems, but that's how the devil works, you know? Just keep piling it on. You would think with all of the trouble you're going through with your children that you wouldn't also lose your job, but that's exactly how the devil works. Just pile it on, pile it on. If you were to fight in the name of the Lord, you could not be defeated. So his strategy is just make you never, ever fight in the first place. Overwhelm you, paralyze you. Am I I telling you the truth? So David steps out and begins talking to Saul. This is amazing. It's just an amazing scene. What's he got in his hand? He's got the elastic off his underwear, y'all. It's just the funniest thing. Like Saul, you know, he's, you know, you know sitting there with his iPads or you know, whatever, you know, it, it's just trying to have a quiet moment, you know. Um, he must have been so lost in his, you know, thoughts uh, that, that David is able to sort of slip up in the dark and, and, and cut the elastic off his underwear, you know, like off his feet. And, and then here he stands out, you know, with the elastic off his underwear going, Saul, look, look. But, but notice, what, notice what David says. Why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? Now, when David holds the elastic off his underwear, he's not mocking him. What's he saying by, by holding that up? What's he saying? I had my chance. This is how close I I was to you. I'm holding the elastic off your underwear. I could be holding your heart in my hand. I could have cut it out while you sat there. Do you understand what David is saying here? I had my chance. Why are you listening to the people who lie to you? Anybody who says that I'm trying to kill you, they're lying to you. I had my chance. I didn't lay a finger on you. Why are you listening to lies? This brings me back to uh, the, the, the devil's big strategy. Understand, his, his primary strategy, his fatal blow is always the same. He tells you a lie. Honestly, the devil has no power over you. He has no weapon. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Remember what the scripture says? He's got nothing. He's got nothing. Jesus already defeated Satan at the cross. The devil has nothing. He has no power over you, no weapon formed against you. He has nothing. The only thing he can do is to lie. He lies to you. Jesus says he is a liar and the father of lies. It's all he's got. But he's so good at it. He's such a good liar. He doesn't even need a good lie, understand? Just a lie that you'll believe. And and the lie he tells you is always that lie that that is so easy for you to believe. Now, it's a lie. There's no truth to it, but but it'll tie you up every time. He can paralyze you with a lie. His fatal blow is always the same. He lies. So David steps out, understand, in, in this sermon series, we're never saying that these human foes are the enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is spiritual. The devil is the enemy. So Saul is not exactly the enemy. Saul is a victim here too. The devil is having victory in the life of Saul, and it's another tragic story. 
But the way the devil has victory in the life of Saul is by lying to him. And what's the lie that the devil's telling Saul right now? David's going to kill you. Yeah. Read the story. You know that Saul is, he struggles with mental illness. He struggles with depression. He struggles with anxiety and paranoia. And the devil hits him right there. Saul's already a little bit prone to, to being a little anxious, nervous, always thinking somebody's out to get him. So the devil comes up and says, David's going to kill you. David's going to kill you. Drives Saul crazy, insane with this thought that David wants to kill him. It's a lie. It's a lie. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's not happening. It's not happening today. It's not happening tomorrow. David's not going to kill Saul. It's a lie. And David says, why in the world are you listening to the lie? It's my question to you today in the heat of spiritual warfare is, why are you listening to the lie? It's all the devil's got. Is, is a lie, but you listen to the lie, and that's how he defeats you. He can't defeat you with truth. Jesus is truth. That's why when Paul talks about spiritual warfare in the, in the book of Corinthians, the, this is what he says about spiritual warfare and, and what it looks like, and it's amazing. The battleground is not where you think. The battleground is not in the darkness of a cave. The battleground of spiritual warfare is always in your thoughts. It, it's in your thoughts because the devil, all he can do is whisper, so he whispers a lie. It, it comes in your thoughts. And that lie just comes into your head. And you don't even for the longest time understand that that's the devil planting the lies in your head. So Paul says this, we take every thought captive. That's warfare language. I, I, I have a thought in my head. I have to take it down. I have to take it captive in order to make it obedient to the truth of Christ. You have to take the thoughts. You have to find the lies that, that the devil slips into your thoughts. And you have to wrestle those down to the ground. You have to take them down and examine them next to what you know to be true in Christ. This is how you fight spirits. This is how you fight the devil, you all. You, you thought it was going to be something different. You thought it was going to be holy water and crucifixes. No, no, no. You take every thought captive to make it obedient to the truth of Christ. So the devil will lie to you, and you have to be wise enough, slow enough to stop, take the thought, rest it to the ground, and ask yourself, is that true? Is that what Jesus says? Is that the truth of Christ? And if it is not the truth as you know it in Christ, th then you have to banish that thought. It's a lie. Don't believe it. Don't accept it. Because the horrible thing is a lie that you accept as truth will operate in your life as if it were true. If you believe it's true, it'll start acting in your life as if it is true. So if the devil tells you you're weak, you can never win. You can never, ever beat your addiction. If you believe that lie, then you're going to live that lie even though it's not true. If you believe it, the devil tells you you're worthless. Nobody's ever going to love you. You can't trust anybody because everybody's going to turn on you. If you believe that, you won't have a friend in the world. That doesn't make the lie true. It just means if you accept it as truth, it's going to work in your life as if it were true. And that's how the devil takes you down. You take every thought captive. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is exhausting. This is exhausting. I mentioned addiction. Any of you who have ever battled addiction, you know this process right here. And you know how hard that is. 
Because the thoughts, the lies just keep coming. Not just day by day, but minute by minute. You just take one drink, just one drink. You can take one drink. Everybody else can take one drink. You can take one drink. It's not going to set you back. Just take one hit, one pill. Just go back, get one pill. You just take one of those pills. You know how they made you feel. You need that feeling right now. It's not going to set you back. I mean, that thought just runs through your head over and over and over, and you constantly have to take that thought down and recognize it is a lie, it is a lie, it is a lie. That is exhausting. That's why we call it battle, spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. So let's just stop right now. It could be that some of you right now are recognizing the battle in your life, and and until this moment, you didn't recognize it as spiritual. You just thought you were really, really unlucky. You thought you were the unluckiest lady in the whole world. Because somehow every time you go on a date, you know, it's like this long, long parade of just losers. And you just thought you were just unlucky. You really don't recognize the way the devil, you see, lines. You never really recognize that that thought in your head that tells you that you're ugly and worthless and nobody will ever love you, you know. You've never realized where that lie comes from, that, that, that lie that tells you that men won't love you if you don't sleep with them. It's a lie. So what lies is he telling you? Is he telling you that you can never be forgiven, that, that you'll never be free from your past, that, that, that nobody's ever going to let you forget it, that, that, that you have to live and, and live and live and be punished and remember every single day because of all that you've done. I mean, is that the lie he's telling you? You can never be forgiven because that's a lie. Is he telling you that nothing you do is ever enough? It doesn't matter what you do. It'll never be enough. You are responsible for everything but not good enough to do anything right. You understand how he puts those lies together in such a way where you can't possibly win a single day of your life? Is he telling you that people are going to leave you, everybody's going to leave you, you're going to be alone? Is that the lie he tells you? Is it the devil that tells you that you're worthless, that you're weak? The devil that tells you that you'll never amount to anything, that your daddy was right about you? What, what lie are you believing? Take that thought captive, recognize it is a lie. Do not let the devil tie you up and defeat you with lies. Why are you listening to the lies? Because they come at you like a thousand minnows. It's never just one thought. It's never just one lie. It's a swarm. It's a nest. It's a web of lies and deceit, attacks. It just come from all sides. If if it were a shark that would come and devour you in one bite, you would know how to fight. It's just the way the devil comes from all sides, whispering, lying. Every one of us is fighting a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. You're inclined to think that other people are your enemies, that that they are the ones who've wronged you. You need to understand the devil is lying to you. He's getting victory in your life by turning you against people. Your battle is not with people. It's not the people at work. It's not the people in your family. If one enemy is the devil, he lies to you, he overwhelms you, he paralyzes you because he does not want to fight you. In the name of Jesus, victory is already yours. The only way, the only way that he can steal your victory is to paralyze you, 
with lies, with attacks, so that you never show up to fight. But aren't you tired of listening to lies? Aren't you tired of fighting this swarm of battles one after another? Aren't you ready to walk in victory? The the secret here is in some ways counterintuitive. In, In other words, you stop really thinking about the devil and you stop listening to his lies. You just begin to focus on the truth. You just begin to chase after Jesus. The closer you are to Jesus, the further you are away from him, the devil. Understand that the more you know Jesus, the more you know truth, and the better you know truth, the less of the devil's lies you'll fall for. You just need Jesus in your life in the biggest possible way. Maybe the reason that the devil has you right there in his grip is because you just continue to live your life so close to him. Why don't you make whatever changes are necessary in your life to move you closer to Jesus? Walk after Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Let the mind of Christ fill your thoughts so that you're not so prone to listen to lies. David stands out across the valley holding the hem of Saul's garment saying, why are you listening to lies? I just wonder today why you're listening to lies too. Pray with me.